News on RTHK. Going to create more turbulence. The economic statistics. A triple dead recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotrahora. U.S. stocks fell the most since March thanks to the escalating crisis in Greece and a mixed U.S. jobs report. The IMF says that Greece needs another 55 billion U.S. dollars to stabilize its finances. And China will crack down on market manipulation as stocks plunge yet again. The S&P 500 ended the shortened U.S. week lower by 1.2 percent and suffered its biggest single-day decline of the year on Monday as uh, Greece closed its banks and imposed capital controls. Well, more on markets this morning with Reorient Group's Steve Wong. The Wall Street Journal's uh, James Reddy in Shanghai will then tell us more about Chinese IPOs. And Tobias Hexter of the Chinese University of Hong Kong is back in the chair as guest host. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning, Renita. Tobias, the Shanghai Composite fell 3.5% at the close to 3,912, so below the 4,000 level for the first time since April, and down 24% from its peak on June 12th. So can we now officially you know, stop talking about volatility and say that we are in bear territory? Now, I would actually say it's a volatility thing because the day-to-day movements, it's down 3%. But for the past days, we had high lows that were close to or even exceeding 10%. The pattern is that you see the Chinese government saying something positive to prop it up. A rate cut, a reserve ratio cut, a reduction in transaction fees, easier for margin trading. Market props up a bit and then in the end, bearish sentiments wins and we drop yet again. All right, we're going to talk a lot more about the Chinese markets in the second part of the show. Uh, in the meantime, however, Greek polls are indicating a tight race. And whichever way it goes, it doesn't look like the drama is going to end by this weekend. What do you think? Yeah, I tend to disagree with the polls. And it's funny, if you take a look at opinion polls and then you look at bookmakers' site, where people actually put their money where their mouth is, uh, Paddy Power of Ireland have already closed their bets because they had such a resounding vote in favor of yes. So I hope, think, we're getting a bit of conclusion in the weekend. We get a yes vote. Uh, we can say bye-bye and opa to uh, Varoufakis and Tsipras, and then we finally can get moving on again where we started six weeks, a month ago. Indeed, everybody's suffering from exhaustion, not least so the Greeks themselves. But even with a yes vote, I mean, is the drama actually going to end? I mean, the IMF has said that Greece needs 55 billion US dollars to become stable again. Well, if there's a yes vote, then we're going to comfortably enjoy the same game of extend and pretend. The problem is not solved, but at least it's, covered, it's pushed down the road. Some uh, nice can kicking. Now, Tobias, Angela Merkel has said that Greece no longer poses a threat to Europe's future. Is Germany actually prepared to see Greece go, do you think? Well, if you look at the markets, yes, Monday we had a bit of a down move, but it was contained. I didn't see that much yield explosion in the other peripheral countries. So the markets are voting. We can live without it. And that, of course, really pushes Merkel's hand. 
Whether she wants to kick the Greeks out is a second thing. But negotiating-wise, the nuclear option that the Greeks are peddling might not be nuclear anymore. All right. Well, the Athens Stock Exchange and Greek banks have remained closed all week. But Finance Minister Yanis Varoufakis told Bloomberg's Guy Johnson that he expects banks to reopen after the referendum. Once the political crisis is over, after the Greek people deliver their verdict, the banks will open. How will the banks open without a program? How will the ECB extend the ELA without a program? You won't necessarily be in a program on Tuesday morning. You're starting with a blank piece of paper. You have to understand that Europe, since the great financial collapse of 2008, has been making up rules as it's going along. Uh, The SM, uh, QE, everything, the Greek program, uh, the FSF, all these are uh, last-minute arrangements by which to um, handle uh, an inevitable crisis that nobody was expecting. And I, I can assure you that on Monday, if there's a political will, the ECB, on the, okay. on the back of some preliminary agreement by a teleconference of the Eurogroup, can easily uh, ink the ELA sufficiently in order to, to, to restart the banking system, and we could have an agreement within 24 hours. So the ECB will be making up the rules as it's going along, is that what you're saying? Well, that's what it does. Okay. It's been doing this for five years. Okay. Think back Ireland, 2009. Think everything that has happened, and, you know, the whatever it takes speech, what was that? Was that in any rule book? And you think that the ELA will therefore be increased on Tuesday morning regardless of the outcome? No, it won't be regardless of the outcome. It will depend on the outcome. That's why we do have a referendum, because it's a crucial contributor to coming to an, uh, to an, to an agreement. Uh, the ECB has its rules. Yeah. Of course, it adapts them as it goes along, because it has to. Because nobody ever expected that the ECB would have to play this role since 2010. Uh, and we, what we need, we politicians need to do, is to uh, enable uh, Mario Draghi and his governing council to do the right thing by the Eurozone. Tobias, what do you think of that? The ECB has its rules, but it, yeah, maybe makes them up along the way. Well, he has in a way a point there. And in the end, uh, I think uh, Draghi, when he did the I'll do whatever it takes, finally played the game that the US guys are always playing. There's a rule book, but it's all about massaging in a way the market and relaying some trust. Bending that to say that therefore they're going to help Greece anyway is sort of stretching it. Yeah, I'll do whatever it takes. It's a great rap theme, you know. <laughs> well, uh, U.S. job growth slowed in June and Americans left the labor force in droves, tempering expectations for a September interest rate hike from the Federal Reserve. Here's what University of Oregon economics professor Tim Doy said to Bloomberg. I don't think it's going to change anything about the pace that they're going to hike. In fact, I think it fits pretty well with the view that we're going to have a gradual uptick in rates when the Fed starts to rate, raise rates. I think as far as the timing on net, it pushes you a little bit away from September toward December. But we have two more labor reports before that this September meeting to really get through a, a lot more data. And Savita Subramaniam of the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. I mean, we, you know, we're sticking with our September call that the Fed starts in September. They hike 25 basis points every other session. Um, but I agree. You know, the jobs report today was meh. So it does sort of uh, maybe your technical the, term. My course, technical term. Exactly. It's a quantitative term. <laughs> um, but it does. It might push the, the date out to December. I agree with that. That rationale. I think, though, that it's. Um, it's going to be a quiet summer. There's not that much information that comes out over the next few months, right? I mean, we have um, Jackson Hole, that's the biggie, but it, there's not a lot of 
Fed rhetoric that's going to come out over the next couple of months, which is interesting. That could add a little bit of nervousness and skittishness mm-hmm. to the market. The Dow fell 27 points to 17,730. The Nasdaq also dropped to about a tenth of a percent to 5,009, but the S&P 500 finished pretty much unchanged at 2,076. The China Securities Regulatory Commission will organize a probe with special focus on cross-market manipulation and send criminal cases to the police. The regulator made its decision based upon reports from China's stock and future exchanges, which monitor trading movements. Let's bring in our first guest for this morning, Steve Wong, who is the research director at the Reorient Group. Good morning, Steve. Hi, good morning. So, Steve, uh, you know, we've been so focused on margin trading and Mm -hmm. now we have this added term cross-market manipulation. Can you explain this for our listeners? Sure. I think this uh, investigation started off from some reports that suggested uh, foreign funds were targeting the futures market. So in a way, they were uh, perhaps selling down the futures in order to drag down the main index. So I think regulators are a bit unhappy about that, and they're trying to figure out what is actually happening. Why is it, Steve, that margin traders are continuing to unwind their positions? Are they concerned that the government cannot support equities? Well, margin traders, obviously, they have their uh, own position at stake. And with the market down that much since the top, uh, I think people are taking another look at where the fair fair valuation should be at. And we look at the margin financing uh, balances in the stock market by the brokerages. They are going, going down by the tune of about 50 billion RMB a day, which is actually not that much. Actually, we did uh, we did look into this this issue more in detail, and I think that the the, the margin financing that happens outside the boards, which is some of the P two P lending platform, that can actually drive more of a bigger swings in the market today uh, these days. Tobias, yeah, I'm very interested about the new cross market manipulation thing. Couldn't it just be a trade that happens in all exchanges in the world, namely the relationship between ETFs? futures and the actual basket, something, of course, that the foreign firms are much more prevalent in. This looks a bit like a typical case of Chinese blame the foreigner. It, is, it does look like it, and I, I don't really think that they're going to get much out of this investigation. I think what is really happening right now is in the summer period, I mean, people are are trying to take some risks off the table. I think later we might see a rally ba- later back in the year. Uh, right now, you know, we're right now just really trying very hard to hold that or meet that 4,000 target. You've seen the regulators jumps, jumps up and down like frogs in hot water. Uh, when it ever, whenever it, uh, uh, when the stock market falls below 4,000. And I think yesterday's uh, data uh, on the sector data for which sector outperform on the stock prices, you can see that the banks and the blue chips are really the one that's still st- is still left standing. Mm. So I think that essentially what you're seeing right now is is pretty normal market reaction to a fairly overvalued market for some time, the, or you can just say market that gone up too fast. But I mean, there's still very good potential for the underlying Chinese economy. But now I think people just want to take some risks off the table. So I think. 
we 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 had the forecast that the market should sideways trade through the summer, but I think so far we have not been so accurate. It's been really really volatile, as Tobias mentioned, and I think uh, the regular will still keep trying to keep it above four thousand, and we might go four thousand four thousand eight hundred, but I think that's pretty much about it. Tobias, I can ask one more question. What I find so surprising is you have the general dragging down during the day. And then these extremely violent quick rips up. Who do you think is behind that? And <laughs> that, of course, is not the manipulation that the government wants to prohibit. Oh, of course. I think the, regular, the government really wants a smooth market. I mean, it just doesn't want to see the market go ups and down by more than 2% a day. However, I think during the day, there's multiple factors. I think the, the stock market in China is still a very young market. And it it's never has been, it's never been a, you know, one that you can say the foreigners are here to to uh, manipulate the market one way or the other. It's, it's, I think it's, a lot of domestic forces are in the play as well. And, you know, you can't really deny the fact that uh, with state money coming in, I think that's probably the next big thing is they will come in and start to hold up the market. Yeah, there's so many factors to consider here. I mean, Steve, the one thing that you mentioned about the banks, I mean, financial companies have outperformed Mm -hmm. the market for six days straight right through yesterday, Mm -hmm. which is the longest stretch, actually, since January 2013. Have the so-called boring, you know, the boring China bank stocks become Mm -hmm. somewhat of a safe bet, you know, amidst uh, all of this volatility that we've seen? Oh, you, you just drive to my point because <laughs> we've been really loving the banks for a long time. Uh, I think the reason is very simple. If you want the stock index to go up or hold up, you have to rely on the banks because they're so huge in terms of the market capitalization. So if, to, if you want to use, you want to blow the least, least of money to prop the market, the best bet is to buy the banks and all the, the, all the uh, or even the oil majors, right? That's what we saw yesterday as well. Yet, uh, if you look at the Hang Seng, you will see that it actually rose yesterday, just 0.1%, but mm-hmm. still it rose. <laughs> but interestingly, led by gaming companies. Now, was that a surprise? That is a surprise, yes, because I think that was that's that's due to another piece of news that suggested that the travel restriction in Macau might be loosened. So that, and also some some analysts suggest that the the slump in GGR, the gross gaming revenue, is not as bad as expected. Do you think that means that uh, the free fall that we've seen in the gaming industry is going to come to an end? Uh, potentially, uh, I've been thinking about that for some time. Actually, sometimes I played around that idea with our investors, because I think there is some correlation between Macau and the stock market, and I think there has been a tremendous amount of a uh, crackdown or you know inconveniences caused to the to the casinos that their stock has really been you know, plunging. But in a piece of that, that mentality is that, you know, uh, conspiracy theories that if you don't let the gamblers go to Macau, they might find their way into the stock market. Well, you just hit the nail on the head. I was going to bring up the conspiracy <laughs> theory next. So do you actually think there is a correlation? We'll have to see. I mean, I think there's a possibility. We always, you know, we're looking at these things all the time. I think that Macau is an interesting place. It's People like to go tour, you know, go abroad and, and enjoy a good time, right? I think that is a new trend in the Chinese economy. Tourism, tech, 
these kind of thing, entertainment, leisure, is is still doing pretty well in China. I would say the industrial sector sucked, but uh, you know the consumers still have their money with them. Really, uh, job is doing okay in China. So I think, by and large, I think Macau, if you position it properly, then it could have, there could be some some upside to that sector, though. Yeah, well, they certainly have the money, and they certainly seem to be having a good time at home, as Tobias says, with those sudden spikes that we see <laughs> in the market. Uh, quick question on uh, the U.S. Um, Steve, would you say that the odds of a Fed rate hike in September have now been diminished? Definitely. I think uh, our U.S. economists uh, have been on this topic for uh, way ahead of the curve. We basically saw that, you know, just make it really simple, you know, the U.S. economy has largely depended on the high oil prices to stimulate its development and investment in the shale oil or gas. So with that, that big major factor taken away, we've seen capital investment at the, at the corporate level falling drastically, especially from the oil sector. And that has a ripple effect across the whole economy. So therefore, you know, you, what you see right now is you see consumption sort of lackluster, uh, people are buying cars because the cars are so old in the U.S. They have to buy new cars. And I think there happen to be a lot of nice models coming online. But overall, generally speaking, I think people can't really find uh, a lot of good jobs. And you know, people are, are just not getting the, got, got, not going to the market. Participation rate is going down. All right, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Steve Wong, and he is the research director at the Reorient Group. Well, it's time to take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down this morning 0.13% to 20,495. Australia's ASX 200 index also down 0.01% to 5,587. And Seoul's Kospi up 0.03% to 2,108. In currencies, the euro currently is valued at 1.10 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 123.09 yen and one pound sterling will buy you 12 Hong Kong dollars and nine cents and one US dollar and 56 cents. Well, we'll be back to talk more about IPOs in China. That's right after this. Trees. Remember the first time you drew one or played hide and seek under one? We spend many moments under trees which evoke happy memories but their growth is affected by the natural cycle and the environment. We have to take proper care of trees and deal with those that are dangerous so we can live together in harmony with trees. People, trees, harmony. To report problem trees, please call 1823. The time is now 8.21 a.m. And according to wind information, mainland China has seen 220 IPOs to date with uh, IPO value at 137.1 billion yuan, while 448 billion yuan were raised by selling new shares. Analysts have been saying that IPOs are good for raising corporate funds. Let's bring in our next set of guests for this morning. Uh, we've got uh, the Wall Street Journal. Journal's James Aredi, who joins us on the phone from Shanghai. And we've also got Ernst Young's uh, Ringo Choi. He is the Asia-Pacific uh, IPO leader. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, James, if we could uh, go to you first, uh, do you think that the numbers suggest that IPOs in China are really going from strength to strength? 
Well, what we've done is we've looked at how uh, there was a there was a stoppage of IPOs um, leading up to this rally. You know, just ahead of this rally for more than a year, there weren't any IPOs in China. Um, and and uh, now, what it's been explained to me is that we're seeing a lot of catch up. That there's uh, you know there's a long pipeline. Uh, depending on how you count it, more than a thousand companies would like to list shares, and so we have seen a few hundred um, IPOs in China. Uh, every single one of them out of the gate rises by the maximum daily uh, increase, which is 44%, which suggests uh, a lot of demand for these um, new issues. And so, you know, it would. It would play to the government's strength to permit more and more IPOs, and they seem like they're, you know, willing to do that. Now, Ringo, you say that there could be close to 400 A-share IPO deals just by the end of this year. Is is that right? That, that's right. Uh, 400 uh, deal is expected. Of course, it will all depends on the policy, especially with China have all the authority to change. And then if they, get, they want to suspend it, then surely the number will not be 400. Would there be reason for the Chinese government to suspend any of these IPOs? Well, uh, in the past, uh, we always see that uh, Chinese government sometimes have various reasons to do, to do this uh, temporary suspension. Maybe the policy that need to be fine-tuned, or maybe some of the reasons in order to uh, maintain the market to be in a more stable position. So these are various uh, reasons for the temporary suspension. Now, James, uh, you uh, suggest that, you know, the whole point of any type of financial intermediation, such as that by the, uh, you know, uh, Chinese government with banks or the capital market, is that money has to go to productive use. And uh, you suggest in your story that uh, more money is going to exchanging shares rather than to IPOs. Is that right? Um, that seems to be the case. Uh, there is um, there's just such furious trading that the, you know, the, the shares are trading uh, turnover is so high in, in uh, Shanghai and especially in Shenzhen um, that it clearly suggests that there's a lot of investor interest in the market. Um, and this goes to the fact that there's, there's retail investment, but it just shows that there's a giant pool of money out there. And it would seem that if there were more IPOs, that this money would be you know, more it would be absorbed into the into the economy because this would be fundraising for actual companies. These companies would uh, be able to sell shares and use that money for whatever expansion plans that they had. Some of these plans would be deemed, uh, you know, good idea by the market, and some of them would probably be seen as, as not such a, a good idea. But when you're in a situation where every single IPO goes by the maximum, goes up by the maximum 44%, on day one, that suggests not really a whole lot of differentiation in the market and suggests a huge amount of demand. Tobias, you want to weigh in here? You said earlier that IPOs are part of the problem. I think, um, sorry, I fully agree that if everything goes up 44%, IPOs become like free lottery tickets. And you see that a lot of money is being slushed away from the active trading of the secondary stocks into depositing funds for IPOs. And it actually blocks money. So is there a chance that in order to stem that continuous decline that we've seen over the past weeks, that indeed that's going to be used to block the IPO window for now. 
One of the interesting things, you know, that James mentioned in his story on Wednesday was that the combined values of the Shanghai and Shenzhen markets make China the world's second biggest equity market after the U.S. But the exchanges boast very few vibrant corporate names and rather they play host to the state's uh, business interests, you know, from giant companies like uh, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China and PetroChina to uh, smaller enterprises even that typically trace ties to government entities. Ringo, what do you think about this and the quality of of the kind of company that, you know, we will see IPOs from this year? Well, I think uh, for mainland China, a lot of smaller size companies uh, on the contrary will be more uh, uh, receptive for the investors, uh, probably because of their smaller size and then they will have a higher return and, you know, uh, Investors are always looking for higher return. So that's why when we look at the list of the uh, potential IPOs in mainland China, there are quite a lot of uh, medium or small size companies that may come up instead of having those mega IPOs that will come out to the markets. But are these also companies that, uh, as James said, will trace their ties to government entities? Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, there will be some private companies coming up and also on top of some uh, uh, state company. Uh, those state, state companies mainly, uh, well, come up with the reason for uh, providing some more funding for those uh, industries that the government is uh, taking after of. Uh, so I think that is the trend. James, what do you make of that? Um, it seems that there are uh, some smaller private companies that are coming to market. But China's definition of private company is sometimes not the same as it would be in the West. That, um, I think it is fair to say that most of the companies have some ties to a government entity, um, whether it's directly in ownership or whether it's uh, through a particular uh, contract that explains their, you know, their, their, their business model. Uh, many of the companies, the companies that go public in China have to have had a, a, um, a profitable track record. Um, and it is crowding out the most dynamic companies that are out there. And one of the points about the, the fact that there are so many big companies and that they, um, uh, the market is dominated by these is that the momentum driven market doesn't really allow for much differentiation between uh, between the stocks. You know, there right. are real stars. Okay, thanks for joining us this morning. That is James Areddy, China correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and also Ringo Choi, uh, Asia-Pacific IPO leader for EY. Well, Tobias, what did you think about that? Well, I found the most interesting part, the very not auspicious sounding uh, say percent maximum rise at the IPO. And I find it telling that the three biggest headline grabbing IPOs were actually securities firms or brokers. Those in the know are apparently selling. Exactly. All right. Uh, well, here we are at the end of the show. So uh, let's take another quick look at the numbers for this morning. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent to 20,455. Australia's ASX 200 index is down nine-tenths of a percent this morning to 5,536. And Sol's Kospi also down one-tenth of a percent to 2,105. Gold currently stands at $1,165 per ounce and Brent 
Brent crude oil at $61.77. So we're here on a Friday. We are heading into a weekend. There is a Greek referendum coming up. What else should we have our eyes on, Tobias? Um, anything exciting coming from China to throw some kitchen sink and other things at the declining market. And hopefully we're going to get Greece at least temporarily off the radar after this weekend. Vodias, bye bye Varoufakis. Opa. All right. Thanks, Tobias. Tobias Hexter is an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Finance at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and a regular guest host on Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora wrapping up for this week's Money for Nothing and a big thanks to our producer, Sandra Lam. Let's take a quick look at the weather forecast for today, which will be mainly fine. Very hot during the day with a maximum temperature of around 33 degrees. Right now it's 30 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 80%. And here's the news with Sam Butler. The British oil company BP has announced a huge settlement with the U.S. Department of Justice following the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. The deal, under which the company will pay up to 18.7 billion U.S. dollars, will be the largest settlement paid by a single company in American history. Radio Australia's Michael Vincent reports. The 2010 oil rig explosion sent 3 million barrels of crude oil into